Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, park enthusiasts. Welcome back to Park Predators Season 3. I'm your host, Delia D'Ambra. The case I'm going to tell you about today happened not that long ago, in January 2012, which technically was a decade ago, but for so many people who are a part of this story, they remember it like it was yesterday. It takes place in Mount Rainier National Park in Washington. And the first thing you need to know about Mount Rainier is that it is spectacularly beautiful and at the same time, an eruption waiting to happen. Seriously, Mount Rainier is an active volcano, according to the National Park Service. It might be icy and covered with snow a lot of the time, but it is still considered a volcanic feature. At more than 14,000 feet above sea level, the glaciated peak is surrounded by five major rivers and what are known as subalpine meadows full of wildflowers. The weather patterns in the park are predominantly dictated by the Pacific Ocean, and for the most part, the climate is cool and rainy. Every now and then, though, in the summer, the temperatures get up to the 60s or 70s on a good day. A big piece of advice that rangers tell all visitors is to pay attention to weather forecasts. The weather can change drastically in the park at any time from November through May. It's pretty much a guarantee that you'll run into road closures or treacherous areas that no one can survive crossing. On New Year's Day in 2012, a female park ranger named Margaret Anderson found herself face-to-face with an unanticipated scenario on a roadway in the park, the result of which was the end of her life and a lengthy investigation to determine if the National Park Service could have prevented her death. This is Park Predators. In the early morning hours of January 1st, 2012, 911 dispatchers in King County, Washington received an alarming call around 3 a.m. The person on the other end of the line was panicked and shouting that they'd witnessed a violent shooting in the 6200 block of South 117th Place in Southeast Seattle. The caller claimed that three men and a woman were in a house at that address and needed medical attention right away. King County deputies rushed to the scene and sure enough, they found four people, three men and a woman, bleeding extensively from gunshot wounds. Ambulances rushed the victims to Harborview Medical Center, but things were not looking good. When deputies interviewed witnesses in the area and the 911 caller, they learned that a New Year's Eve house party had been in full swing inside the home when the shooting took place. 
According to KOMO News, people who attended told investigators that around midnight, several people had shown up armed with guns and had a, quote, show and tell, end quote, with their guns. By three o'clock, the partying had escalated and an argument over a firearm broke out. According to ABC News' reporting, at least one guy was asked to leave, but not long after, he returned, and that's when shots had rung out. Before anyone knew what had happened, four people were laying on the ground, bleeding from bullet wounds. Unfortunately, none of the witnesses who spoke with police knew who had pulled the trigger or if there were multiple shooters who'd fired. And to make matters worse, authorities couldn't get any useful information from the four victims because they were all in really bad shape. Two of them were reported as being in critical condition, just barely clinging to life. What detectives did determine was that witnesses saw at least three people fleeing the scene right after the shooting, including the man who'd been asked to leave the party but then returned. So obviously those three folks that left were who authorities wanted to speak to right away. Within an hour or so, deputies had tracked down two of those three people and made contact with family members of the third. That last person of interest's name was Benjamin Barnes, but when officers asked his family where he was, they said they didn't know. At the time, they were living in Southern California and said Benjamin had been staying in Seattle for the last few years. So that lead kind of died there. Deputies would have to wait for more clarity with their current shooting investigation, because just as they were working to get some answers and more information about Benjamin, another violent event erupted two hours away inside Mount Rainier National Park. That incident prompted law enforcement in King County and other surrounding counties to drop what they were doing and scramble to assist the National Park Service. Around 10 a.m., a veteran volunteer park ranger named Bill Marsh was working inside the Longmire Museum at Mount Rainier National Park when he caught a glimpse of a passing park ranger. Inside the vehicle, he saw the face of 34-year-old Margaret Anderson, an 11-year veteran of MPS who frequently slowed down to wave, honk her horn, and smile at Bill as he geared up for a busy day of visitors at the Longmire Historic District. After their brief, nonverbal exchange, Bill watched Margaret drive her government-issued SUV up the mountain on Paradise Valley Road. Bill knew Margaret was likely headed to check in at the Jackson Memorial Visitor Center, about 11 miles up the mountain. Roughly 35 minutes later, he heard a distress call come over his radio that made him stop dead in his tracks. A female voice on the other end shouted, Ranger 741, down. Those three words told Bill everything he needed to know. Margaret Anderson's badge number was 1074. Bill knew she was in danger and needed backup immediately. Right away, Bill and other rangers in the park's radios went wild and communication started to get tangled. All they knew was that somewhere in the 11 miles between Longmire Ranger Station and the main visitor center up the mountain, something had happened to Margaret. The squawking chatter over their radios quickly cleared up, though, and Bill and dozens of other rangers on duty learned that minutes before Margaret's distress call had come in, another ranger driving up the mountain had initiated a routine traffic stop on a blue Pontiac sedan that had blown through a tire chain checkpoint. Some source material says it was a Chevy Impala, but most material says a Pontiac sedan. Anyway, the car blowing through the tire chain checkpoint was a big deal, because in the winter, when weather conditions are at their worst, NPS requires vehicles driving up the mountain be outfitted with snow chains on their tires to avoid accidents. 
In the days leading up to January 1st, the weather had been icy and snowy in the park, so when this mystery vehicle had failed to stop, the ranger that spotted it had immediately gotten behind it to tail it. When that ranger's lights and sirens had started up, the driver of the Pontiac totally ignored the attempted traffic stop and led the officer on a slow but steady chase up the mountain. When they learned that information, it was clear to Bill and everyone else what had happened. Margaret had likely heard her fellow ranger's radio announcement that he was in pursuit of a car and she'd turned around to set up a roadblock, a standard procedure for any law enforcement officer who knows a car chase is headed in the direction of innocent civilians. Bill's heart sank because he knew without a doubt that Margaret had been headed up the mountain just a few minutes earlier. And just based on how well he knew her, he knew there was no way she would have just ignored the dispatch. She would have taken every opportunity to prevent whoever was in the rogue fleeing car from coming in contact with droves of tourists at the visitor center. And Bill's fears were right. According to a news release from the National Park Service, Margaret Anderson had heard the commotion on the scanners about the car chase and radioed in that she would turn her SUV sideways on Paradise Road to try and intercept the driver and ensure whoever was behind the wheel did not make it up the mountain to the Jackson Visitor Center. That one decision proved to be fatal, though, because within seconds of the rogue car's driver coming in contact with Margaret, he made an abrupt U-turn got out of his driver's side door and opened fire on her with an AR-15 rifle. The shooter's round hit Margaret at close range while she was still sitting in her SUV. According to NPS, authorities believe that Margaret likely died shortly after being shot. A report from the agency states that she was able to reverse her Chevy Tahoe into a snowbank and drive about 100 yards up the mountain while getting one last radio call out. In that call, she stated she needed help and warned her co-workers that the man who'd shot her was armed and had taken off on foot with a rifle, extra ammunition, and a knife. But after that, no one spoke with Margaret again, which indicated she bled out fast. When she was shot, Margaret was armed with a service weapon, but had been unable to reach it or fire it before being shot herself. NPS's release on the incident stated that after shooting Margaret, the gunman fired at other responding rangers who were en route driving up the mountain, including the ranger who'd initiated the original traffic stop. That officer took several rounds to his windshield, and a bullet even went through his seatbelt, but miraculously, he was unharmed. After sending a barrage of bullets towards other first responders, the gunman took off further into the snowy tree line and was presumed to be hightailing it into the wilderness. The only glimpse anyone got of the man was that he was a younger-looking white guy who had at least some belongings with him. Minutes after the shooting call came in, more than 200 park staff who were on duty, as well as droves of officers from surrounding law enforcement agencies, responded to the scene. The main investigating entities that spearheaded getting to Margaret and launching a search for the gunman were the Pierce County Sheriff's Office, Washington State Patrol, and the FBI. The problem they faced was that somewhere hidden in the thick forest near the scene, the shooter was still firing at law enforcement. According to NPS's documents on this incident, it was too dangerous for anyone to get close to Margaret's vehicle or her body. Meanwhile, visitors and park staff were trapped several miles away at the Jackson Visitor Center. NPS staff closed all entrances to the park and reported that in total there were 125 visitors and 17 park staff members housed under armed guard at the Jackson Visitor Center, while other first responders further down the mountain tried to assemble a manhunt for the gunman. 
The first group of officers to attempt to get to Margaret came from the Pierce County SWAT team, but within minutes of launching an initial push up the mountain, they were batted back down by gunfire. For 90 minutes, Margaret's fellow rangers and her husband Eric, who was also a park ranger but was working on duty in another section of the park, had to watch from a distance as officer after officer attempted to retrieve Margaret's body from her SUV, but every time they failed. Eventually, after what felt like hours, but was actually about two hours, SWAT team members were finally able to get to Margaret and confirmed she was dead. The Seattle Times reported that she died from gunshot wounds to her head and torso while still buckled into her seat. She'd had no time to react to her attacker. SWAT teams also examined the suspect's sedan and found lots of rounds of rifle ammunition, a ballistics vest, and several other high-powered firearms. Throughout Sunday night, law enforcement agencies used aircraft equipped with infrared ground scanning technology to try and locate the shooter. More than 100 officers from neighboring county sheriff's offices and police departments joined in the effort to find Margaret's killer, but the task proved to be tough. The particular area of Mount Rainier where this happened is vast, and although at the time of the shooting the weather was unusually clear and sunny, those conditions were not guaranteed to hold up, and searching hundreds of square miles for one lone gunman was going to be difficult. Not to mention dangerous. Authorities had no idea how many weapons the guy had on him or how much ammunition he had to be able to fight fire with fire. But as soon as they could, law enforcement officers with tracking dogs began to hike on foot following what they believed to be boot tracks in the snow to try and get a better idea of where to begin searching for their suspect. The source material differs a little bit on exactly how investigators determined who they thought the shooter was. But by Sunday afternoon, the FBI and NPS announced that 24-year-old Benjamin Colton Barnes from Seattle was a strong person of interest in the case and the person they believed was on the run. Like I said, the reporting on this isn't super detailed, but I think what happened was that the King County Sheriff's Office that had been investigating the quadruple shooting in South Seattle from New Year's Eve connected with federal investigators and shared their information. I also read in an article by Outside Magazine that when investigators ran the license plate and information for the suspect's blue sedan, it came back to Benjamin Colton Barnes. So whichever way it was, by Monday afternoon, all of the different agencies had gotten on the same page and realized that their main suspect in the house party shooting in South Seattle was also the prime suspect in the murder of Margaret Anderson. What was really not good was that he was still on the loose. As authorities looked into Benjamin's life and background, what they found was disturbing. Do you want to set your child up for success? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. Now, my little guy is still young, but I can already tell that integrating fun ways to learn is going to be a game changer for him. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. There's one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids can even access IXL on the go through the app or your phone or tablet. No more trying to figure out how to explain math equations or grammar rules yourself. IXL has built-in explanation videos. 
Make an impact on your child's learning and get IXL now. And Park Predators listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com park. Visit IXL.com park to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Imagine upgrading your wardrobe with luxury essentials at unbeatable prices. Well, with Quince, you can do that. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. I recently walked all the way through JFK Airport in New York with a terrible piece of luggage that had a wheel that literally would not roll. So I was on the hunt for a new piece of luggage, but I wanted something that was sort of luxury, while at the same time durable. And I found an awesome carry-on with Quince. So I got something super nice, and I did not have to fork out a fortune. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash parkpredators for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash parkpredators to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash parkpredators. According to the News Tribune, Benjamin Barnes was an Iraq War veteran who'd served a tour overseas in the Middle East and came from a military family. The Seattle Times reported that Benjamin had struggled socially and academically in high school and been in and out of courses for troubled students who faced repeated expulsion. After getting his GED, he enlisted in the United States Army in 2007, but only served two years and seven months before being dishonorably discharged in 2009. According to a spokesman for the Army who interviewed with the Seattle Times, Benjamin had displayed one too many bouts of threatening behavior while enlisted, some of which may have stemmed from the loss of a close Army friend who'd chosen to take his own life in 2011. The ultimate reason for Benjamin's dismissal from the Army, though, was because he'd been arrested for driving under the influence and illegally transporting a private weapon while off base. After being discharged, Benjamin's friends and family, who lived in Riverside County in Southern California, said he became increasingly obsessed with guns and the idea of survivalism. When law enforcement investigators searched his social media accounts, they located disturbing images of Benjamin posing with automatic and semi-automatic weapons. The captions of these photos intimated threatening language and behaviors. Benjamin had also spent a lot of time camping and fishing in and around Mount Rainier National Park. Sometimes he'd go by himself, and other times he'd take his young daughter. When authorities tracked down and spoke with his former girlfriend, who was also the mother of his child, they learned that Benjamin had a history of domestic violence and substance use issues. The girlfriend told police that throughout their relationship, Benjamin had claimed to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, a condition he said he'd been diagnosed with after serving overseas. According to court records, in July of 2011, roughly six months before the deadly shooting in the National Park, Benjamin's former girlfriend had sought a temporary restraining order against him. In an affidavit included in that filing, she described Benjamin as someone who would become irritated easily, get angry without provocation, and displayed telltale signs of depression. She said that on more than one occasion during their relationship, he'd verbalized thoughts of self-harm. These behaviors eventually led them to split up, but before they parted ways for good, she'd noticed him storing large quantities of firearms and ammunition in their home. 
The Seattle Times reported that as 2011 came to a close, Benjamin's conversations with friends grew more and more dark. He told one friend he felt like he had no friends, no money, and the world was against him. And to some extent, Benjamin was right. Reports show that by New Year's Eve of 2011, he'd lost his job, he'd lost his relationship, he was only allowed to see his daughter during supervised visits, and had been kicked out of his apartment and was sleeping in his car at casinos. The 24-year-old was not headed in a good direction. With all of that information in mind, authorities issued an all-points bulletin about Benjamin that warned anyone who came in contact with him should not approach him and consider him armed and dangerous. They specifically wanted people camping or hiking in the backcountry of Mount Rainier near an area known as Reflection Lakes to be cautious. Reflection Lakes was sort of smack dab in the middle of the area of the park where authorities were tracking, or at least trying to track, Benjamin. From 1 a.m. until around 4 a.m. early Monday morning, authorities used several armored vehicles to evacuate civilians and staff from the Jackson Visitor Center and get them out of the park. Investigators felt that Benjamin posed too much of a threat to let innocent people and police officers be out in the open as these covert escorts were underway. They figured that unless Benjamin had night vision, it would be impossible for him to see the evacuees in the cover of darkness. When sunrise came on Monday morning, the National Park Service held a press conference and announced that they believed Benjamin had come up to Mount Rainier to flee from whatever crimes he may have committed in Seattle. They speculated that he'd likely just thrown stuff into his car and taken off to hide out in the wilderness of the park, an area he was familiar with and could survive in. They knew he'd had brief contact with his family in between fleeing the house party in Seattle around 3 a.m. and entering the park on Sunday morning. Pretty much from the moment police started looking for him, they realized that Benjamin was not a typical fugitive who was just going to come in willingly or without some kind of a standoff. According to an article in The Oregonian, he had extensive survival skills, likely from his time serving in the military, and he utilized tactics to avoid law enforcement as they tracked him in the park. A spokesman for the Pierce County Sheriff's Office named Ed Troyer told the newspaper, quote, his tracks went into creeks and other waterways. He's intentionally trying to get out of the snow, end quote. National Park Service rangers knew Benjamin's skills were going to be a challenge, but they were confident he'd make a mistake. In fact, in their eyes, he already had. You see, according to a press conference held by the NPS, rangers said that the area of the park they believed Benjamin was hiding out in was blocked on the north side by Mount Rainier itself. On the south side was a range of horseshoe-shaped mountains that were nearly impossible to cross on foot. To the east was about 10 miles of rugged wilderness and a canyon, and to the west, he'd be heading back in the direction of law enforcement. So, essentially, he was trapped. Something else that would probably slow him down were the temperatures in the park. They were reported to have plunged into the upper 20s overnight on Sunday. Law enforcement hoped those freezing conditions would flush Benjamin out or at least cause him to stay in one place long enough for SWAT team members to catch up to him. NPS investigators felt confident that unless Benjamin had the ability and supplies to realistically traverse six to 10 miles over brutal terrain, he'd be unable to escape or punch through the park's natural barriers. There was little chance he would reach the nearby highways and communities, which was a good thing. Something else they noted was that there was zero cell service in that area of the park. So in the event Benjamin was using a cell phone to guide him, he'd be out of luck. 
But the no cell service thing kind of was a double-edged sword because rangers knew that meant anyone else in that area who needed to be alerted to Benjamin's presence likely would never have gotten their all-points bulletin about the deadly shooting or even know there was a wanted fugitive on the loose. The News Tribune reported that not long after the official manhunt got underway, park officials became aware of a group of four hikers who'd registered with NPS before New Year's and were scheduled to be camping at Reflection Lakes for three days. Those people were in extreme danger if they came across Benjamin. So as a way to get an emergency message to them, first responders dropped paper coffee cups from a helicopter with a handwritten warning scribbled on them. The notes said, quote, a ranger has been shot, shooter at large, call on cell if able to Pierce County Sheriff and take road to Falls and Sheriff's deputies. We will keep an eye out on you. Do not drive from Paradise without armed escort, end quote. Thanks to those messages, the hikers did get out of Reflection Lake safely with law enforcement escorting them to the Jackson Visitor Center. Going to lengths like this just shows you how high the stakes were in this situation and the sense of urgency that law enforcement felt to locate Benjamin and arrest him. But there would be no gunfire showdown between police and their fugitive. As it turned out, the weather of Mount Rainier had caught up to Benjamin Barnes. Back when you were in school, what was the most difficult thing about learning a new language? Was it the instructor? Was it your own attention span? Was it getting the accent right? For me, I'll be honest, it was all of those things. Well, with Rosetta Stone, all of that is in the past. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop or can be used on an app or on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages that are offered. It immerses you in many ways. With its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally. First with words, then phrases, then full-blown sentences. And my personal favorite part is the true accent feature, where you get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. As I've been trying to brush up on my French and learn Italian this past year, this feature has been a game changer. So what are you waiting for? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Park Predators listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com park. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com park today. As a Park Predators listener, you know the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. With every case, we've learned one thing. Your best line of defense is your vigilance and preparation, whether you're at home or away on a trip. That's why you should invest in Simply Safe home security today. Simply Safe wraps your whole home in protection with sensors to detect break-ins, fires, floods, and more. I can't even begin to tell you guys how much peace of mind our indoor and outdoor cameras have brought me and my husband over the years. We recently were out of town and we just got this feeling that we wanted to check on our house. You know, that feeling that maybe you get on a trail somewhere in the middle of nowhere and you want to know, hey, what's going on? So we looked at our indoor Simply Safe camera and everything just felt so much better. We could see that actually nothing was wrong, but at least we had that peace of mind. And for as long as I've been partnering with Simply Safe, I've told you that it has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind. And I want you to have it too. 
Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/parks. That's simplysafe.com/parks. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Around 11 a.m. on Monday, authorities circling in an airplane over the search grid they believed Benjamin was hiding out in caught a glimpse of a man's body face down in a snowdrift near the base of a waterfall. Officers in the airplane radioed to ground searchers who spent several more hours hiking to the spot. According to reporting by the News Tribune and CNN, when SWAT teams arrived to the area just after one o'clock, they found a young man's lifeless body partially submerged in a stream of water called Paradise Creek. It was a popular area for hikers and campers, but at the time was covered with several feet of snow that came all the way up to searchers' chests in some parts. The spot they found the body in was a slushy frozen hole in the snow near the base of a waterfall. News reports state that the young man was dressed in only a t-shirt, jeans, and one shoe. NPS officials said that all signs pointed to him dying from exposure to the elements. After the Pierce County Medical Examiner was called in, he determined that the dead man was, in fact, Benjamin Barnes. The ME found that Benjamin had no signs of trauma on his body, which meant he'd not attempted to take his own life. The official findings were that he'd become so hypothermic that he'd fallen unconscious and drowned in the creek. It was estimated that he died within a matter of hours after the shooting. In his pockets, authorities found a handgun and magazines with bullets in them. About 100 yards away from his body, sitting in the water, investigators found a stash of ammunition and two high-powered firearms, including the rifle they believed he'd used to shoot Margaret. At 2 o'clock on Monday afternoon, the FBI, NPS, and local authorities held a press conference and officially confirmed they'd found Benjamin. They called off the be on the lookout alert as well. All of the hundreds of men and women who'd come to help in the manhunt were both relieved and saddened that Margaret's killer had been found, but unable to be brought in alive. Mount Rainier's superintendent at the time told reporters with the Oregonian, quote, we've been through a horrific experience here at Mount Rainier National Park. It's nothing you ever hope to experience, but here it is. This is not what happens typically in a national park. It's a tragedy here. It's a tragedy anywhere. To lose one of your own is a terrible thing, end quote. Though so many people knew Margaret as an exemplary Park Service ranger, she was also a mother of two young girls. She'd spent most of her adult life working in law enforcement in one way or the other to provide for them and set a good example. According to her obituary published by the News Tribune, Margaret graduated high school in 1995 and immediately went to college to study wildlife biology. She earned a Bachelor of Science degree and eventually went on to earn a master's in biology from Fort Hayes State University. After taking a job with the Park Service in 2000, she started working as a ranger in Bryce Canyon Park in Utah, and it was there that she met her husband, Eric. By 2004, the couple had moved to Washington, D.C. to work as rangers, and by 2005, they were married. After the birth of their first daughter in 2008, the Andersons moved back west to work as rangers in Mount Rainier. While still working full-time and balancing a lot of new things, Margaret gave birth to the couple's second daughter in May 2010, just a year and a half before she was murdered. One way I consistently saw her described by friends and family was that she was loving and caring for most people that she met. She loved the outdoors and was always ready with a smile to greet someone interested in learning about nature or the national parks. 
Right before Margaret responded to set up her roadblock, she'd been working in the nearby town of Eatonville, which is actually where she and her family lived. She'd been at the local fire department brainstorming with other emergency personnel, trying to come up with plans on how to improve emergency medical treatment access for people in surrounding communities and within the boundary of the park. The fire chief in Eatonville told KOMO News that Margaret, quote, recognized there was an issue with how people were getting emergency medical service in the park in a timely manner. And she was just one of those people trying to do her part to be a part of the community and help the community, end quote. And probably the most heartbreaking detail that I learned about Margaret from reading an article from Behind the Badge Foundation was that just months before her death, she was actually considering changing careers or at least alternating duties with her job. She lived by the motto, family first, and after the birth of her second daughter, was thinking of ways to better balance family life with work life. If that's true, it's devastating to know she did not live to see that dream become a reality. In the aftermath of Margaret's murder, people who visited the park and those living in nearby towns left flowers and memorials for her near the Longmire Ranger Station. One week after the shooting, thousands of people attended a candlelight vigil for her in Eatonville. Her funeral service was televised and more than 3,700 people attended in person. At the time of her death, it was completely legal in the state of Washington to take a loaded firearm into Mount Rainier National Park. According to multiple news reports, a federal law had gone into effect just two years earlier in 2010 that made firearm possession in national park lands subject to state laws. And in Washington, the state law allowed a person to carry, so people freely carried guns on federal land. The legality of firearms in parks and the National Park Service as a whole came under scrutiny in the aftermath of the shooting. The Oregonian reported that state legislators and activists who supported gun restrictions and were not fans of the federal law Congress had passed spoke out about the tragedy. The National Rifle Association chimed in too, stating that it supported the new federal law despite the horrible tragedy that had happened to Margaret. In its statement, the organization said citizens had the right to bear arms in national parks as a means to protect themselves against any threat, most commonly wild animals. In the weeks following the tragedy and the stirring gun debate, people wanted to know if there could have been anything done to prevent the events from happening like they did. Reporters from outlets all over the state and country peppered NPS with questions, wanting to know if the law enforcement agencies that had been involved had been efficient enough with their communications in between the time the shooting happened in King County at the house party and when Benjamin Barnes had entered the national park on Sunday morning. NPS's initial response was no. The agency said that rangers in the park did not have any indication that Benjamin was headed their way when he left Seattle. NPS vowed to conduct a thorough internal review of the incident, but the results of that would take a long time to come in. While everyone waited to see what the findings would be, winter turned into spring, and in April, two fellow rangers who'd been the first to respond to Margaret's call were honored with Medals of Valor. In May, Pierce County honored Margaret's sacrifice in a special ceremony hosted by the Police Family Association. The News Tribune reported that around this same time, Eric, Margaret's husband, announced he would not return to work in Mount Rainier. He kept his job as a park ranger, but transferred to the NPS's training facility for fire and aviation management in Boise, Idaho. A lengthy two-year investigative probe conducted by the FBI explored the NPS's handling of Margaret's death and how the agency prepared rangers for the scenario she was put into on New Year's Day. In March of 2014, two years after the shooting, the findings came in. 
It recommended that the National Park Service provide formal tactical training and practical training exercises involving high-risk encounters, something they'd not provided before. The report also said the agency should evaluate the personal protective equipment rangers carried, as well as improve standard operating procedures across the board. The report read that those actions would be taken seriously and implemented quickly. According to an article by The Olympian, all of the victims Benjamin shot at the Seattle house party survived their injuries. Margaret was the only person whom he'd killed during his violent rampage. The explanation, or rather series of events that led him to pull the trigger that New Year's Day and forever steal the rest of the years of the young mother's life, seems clear enough, but truly, only he will ever know the why behind his actions. What I know for sure is that Margaret Anderson is a hero, and she should always be remembered as one. A park visitor who was housed inside the Jackson Visitor's Center and had asked Margaret for parking directions minutes before she was killed was later interviewed by the News Tribune, and I think he sums it up best with this quote. I'm positive she saved my life. I was talking to her just minutes before it happened. If that car came up the road, if he had an automatic weapon, I wouldn't be here. I just thank her. She was completely selfless. End quote. Park Predators is an audio Chuck production. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? The living room is where you make some of life's most beautiful memories but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant high-performance furniture from Ashley Store is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley Store's high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, comfortable, and easy to clean for more mess and less stress. Shop the life-resistant high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.